Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Charlie, I have a question for you. Where were you at the beginning of the decade? I was an intern at Grazia magazine. I wore a lot of H&M and I really wanted a Mulberry handbag. Who didn't? Who didn't? Where were you, Emily, and what were you wearing? Well, I was freelancing slash unemployed because the way ahead of its time fashion video portal that I worked for had just gone bust. I was getting ready to start working at Elle Online, wearing loads of vintage clothes and probably also wanting a mulberry handbag. So much has changed, and so little. So We still want mulberry handbags. We still want mulberry handbags. <laughs> the decade has brought us so many fashion moments. We've seen the rise of Instagram, the death of the manicam, big booty beauty. Say that three times fast. I don't want to. It wasn't hard <laughs> enough to say it once. And as the decade draws to a close, we at Fashion Unzipped are taking time to pause, discuss, and appreciate the 20 teens. I'm Emily Cronin, Senior Fashion Editor at The Telegraph. And I'm Charlie Gansai-Clinton, also Senior Fashion Editor at The Telegraph. And we're your hosts. Joining us in the studio is Lisa Armstrong, Head of Fashion. Hello. Hello. Nice to be here. Thrilled to have you. So, Charlie, what a year. What a decade. Where should we start? Ooh, I mean, we've had omelettes, chandeliers, and Pope costumes at the Met Gala, Kim Kardashian's bottom, royal fever, I would describe it as. But let's begin with the huge phenomenon that is Instagram. October 2010, it launched. I was a late adopter. I'm embarrassed to say. Didn't get it for a couple of years after that. But it's changed so much in fashion. We've had influencers on the front row. We've had you know, shopping now via Instagram directly uh, is a relatively new addition. The whole wellness movement really was was born on Instagram and mumfluencers, all of these different movements that actually didn't have a place in the mainstream media and found their voice on Instagram. Lisa, how have you seen it change? I can't believe it's 10 years old. Mm. Um, well, it, it's changed everything in some ways and then it hasn't because it has these micro effects. I, I think what's happened now is that you get people who are very, very famous in a very, very small sphere. So you might get someone who's incredibly famous with, you know, 5 million Instagram followers, which would be huge. But actually, if you're outside that, you don't know about them at all. Whereas I... In the past, if someone was famous on TV, even if you didn't watch any of the things they were ever in, somehow you were aware of them. Because I think the, the media in general were more, they were more enmeshed. So, you know, magazines and newspapers would cover the film world. And so if you made it big in that, then you were big across. Whereas I think everything's much more siloed now. 
And it really has challenged and cannibalized fashion magazines. It's, it's fin- it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll be more careful about what I say. But yes, it's really, really given them a run for their money, hasn't it? We saw someone who was, in her previous role, was an editor-in-chief of a Condé Nast title, as Ava Chen was at Lucky before it folded, then join Instagram as head of fashion partnerships. So that says everything about the way that it, that fashion is going online. And also that we've seen so many magazines close in that time. Well, everything is just so much more reactive now. You know, people are live streaming from the shows and you can see the looks as they hit the catwalk. So I used to work at monthly magazines and we'd be writing about these things and three months in advance of something coming out in print. It just means you're so restricted in in being able to react to street style trends or Instagram trends, all these kind of social trends that we now see all the time that can just blow up out of nowhere. And Instagram itself the content changes all the time. So, you know, I like you, Charlie, I was a very late adopter, but in the beginning you would put up pictures from the catwalk and even if they were quite blurry, people would be very interested because they were, it was so exciting to see things in real time. But now if you put a picture up from the catwalk, even if it's pin sharp and an amazing little angle on a shoe or something that shows the heel that no one else has managed to capture... People think, nah, it's catwalk, it's been there, done that. They want something different all the time. You, you know, they want stuff that's more and more personal. A year or two ago, everything had to be glossy. Now we're told it has to be a bit more real. You can't do blurry catwalk shots. You can't do hot dog legs. What are the other cliches that are done to death? Oh, sandals on a tiled floor. Oh, yes, that's right. That was such a thing, wasn't it? Right. I mean, we, we've cycled um, through so many moments that are no you can't longer. do you know hashtag tbt throwback was it throwback thursday i can't mm. even remember now and all those sort of those those memes that we had they they don't really um definitely can't instagram avocado toast definitely not you say this but then there are people with millions of followers instagramming avocado toast and still, their lo- still? yes and their legs on a sun lounger perhaps with a very woke book next to them yes um, also what we do cover- know oh my gosh we were so naive i mean we know that so many followers are bought bot followers i think people reveal so much of themselves inadvertently via instagram so much of their character you think oh i thought i, thought I knew you but these celebrities <laughs> can be made but also destroyed in a day in hours uh you know we've seen people who like the vegan instagrammer who was video eating fish Ooh. and lost you know millions and and was getting all these really angry comments and had to kind of withdraw from instagram life for a while and she's you know she's making a comeback or we've seen instagram marriages break up we I have mean, tanya burr and jim chapman that's really more of a youtube marriage but i hear you yeah well actually i think her Instagram following is is huge, but it it is this kind of life that you live online and you live through social media and you build together. And actually, that's some people's sole revenue stream is just being on social media. Well, and this actually feeds into another another change over the decade. So, I mean, the archetype of of the ideal fashion designer used to be someone like Reynolds Woodcock, the difficult protagonist of 2018's Phantom Thread. And you can just look at at Alessandra Michele's breathlessly received Instagram posts and the way that that Ricardo Tisky has, you know, always hashtag I, love I think and we're going away from that. Do you? I think, uh, I think Mystique is coming back. I think um, both of those designers you mentioned have had quite a lot of 
pushback and backlash in the past year. I think Virgil Abloh, you know, who is absolutely a multi-platforming artist, you know, DJ, trained architect, fashion designer. He's had to take time off because he's over, probably overstretched himself. I don't, you know, I think that's, I think that's the reason. And I think there is a feeling that Virgil is a bit of a tortured genius, actually. You know, he's someone who's got a lot of talent in a lot of areas and, and, and overdid it. I think people are always very wedded to the idea of a genius who is being absolutely tortured because that makes us feel a bit better about the fact we're not geniuses. <laughs> oh. But that's interesting then. I, I wonder if we've come full circle from you know, admiring and and to a degree worshipping designers who seemed to live for what for the work that they presented on the runway, you know, at, at great personal cost, like John Galliano at, D- at Dior before his fall, Alexander McQueen, and so on and so forth, to total access to now pulling back. And, you know, maybe Mystique will be hot in 2020. You heard it here first from Lisa. Well... <laughs> Um, yeah, I love the idea of Mystique making a comeback. There is far, Not too, much. far too little in. of it. Let the telegraph in. There's the too much sharing. Because, <laughs> of course, it's not honest sharing, is it? And we all know that. Tactical now. sharing. Well, designers have to be so careful now about what they say because, you know, Carl used to come out with a, a great not great, but great news comment about women's weight or, you know, because he'd famously lost all that weight himself and he didn't feel that anyone should be overweight and he had no tolerance for that. Or, you know, these very un-PC comments that he used to make and he didn't care and he was Karl Lagerfeld. So, you know, you wouldn't agree with him. And, And actually those comments could be, you know, very offensive, but... He was very outspoken. Designers now are so careful not to say the wrong thing. They still do, though. I mean, it, 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 it's really quite, it's quite amazing. But I think that's also not always their fault, to be honest, because I think the other thing Instagram has done and social media in general has moved the PC goals. And I was reading an interesting piece on, on the business of fashion, actually, this morning about how in 2008... Cultural appropriation didn't become a term, a commonly used term until 2015. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? And before that, you know, Galliano, back in when he was at Dior in the 1990s, did uh, he did Native American. He That's what he did. He did mashups all the time of lots of different cultures. He did homeless of history. people as inspiration. I yes, mean, he can you did, imagine if anyone did, did that now? He did get heat for that, but he didn't ever get heat for doing Native American or, 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 or Japanese. You know, when he did his Mikado, um, he, he would get, get criticised for other things. So the way we view things has just become it's so different from even 10 years ago so do you think cancel culture has hobbled designers well i think it's case by case i mean i i I think there were some appalling things coming down the catwalk in 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 the past um I mean, I, I seem to remember, it's always Italy, isn't it? There was something in Italy years ago <laughs> where somebody came down a catwalk in striped pyjamas that looked very like concentration camp. And there was. People were 
Um, I think Lueve just had to withdraw those this I, season. I, I think mainly it was it definitely wasn't Lueve, but it was um, it was an Italian. It was some you know no, no one had ever heard of, no one ever heard again. But for about three minutes, they were all over the newspapers. But maybe it was just um, it was just sort of British and American newspapers. Uh, being culturally sensitive. So I think, yes, it's really good in some ways that we're more aware of the offence that that things can give them. But, you know, we everybody's so angry about everything now, aren't they? Yeah. And, and, uh, and Obama, just, you know, highlighted that rather brilliantly in the autumn, didn't he? He said, you know, we're, we're in a circular firing squad now. I mean, if you are going to be furious about everything, eventually people are going to be very furious with you. Oh. And don't be surprised if you get shot down. I don't think he said shot, but... um. (laughs) That feeds into another theme of the 2010s, which is the woke red carpet. I mean, if you think about it, the most delicious and vicious part of any red carpet event used to be dissecting it the next morning. Mm. And I mean, this sport even had its own patron saint and TV show in the form of Fashion Police, (laughs) the celebrity fashion commentary chat show hosted by Joan Rivers, which ran from September 2010 to November 2017. Was it only from 2010? You see, that's really interesting because you would have thought that would have been the start of its demise. That was when she officially started Fashionably. She was on red carpets before then. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think, I'm curious with your point of view, Lisa, because something that Charlie and I discussed is that it's kind of hard to to sort of identify decades-long trends when that decade represents most of your career. Mm. But I think that in this decade, we really saw red carpets escalate from relatively private arrival zones to major product placement opportunities. And, you know, we all got used to hearing, what are you wearing? Yeah, I don't think that started in 2010. I think that had been going on from at least 2000. Um, When Jennifer Lopez wore the the Versace jungle dress. But I mean, even before that, I think... I mean, really, it probably all started in the early 90s when I think there was one, one season at the Oscars, maybe, I can't remember exactly which year, but it would have been early 90s or maybe 89 when Armani kind of took over the styling of the awards and all the actors and actresses, we don't even call them actresses anymore, they're actors, all of them were Female sort of actors. wearing Armani. And they'd, before that, they'd worn... They just wore whatever they fancied, and a lot of it was mad and bad. Um, and it suddenly got very tasteful. And after that, the other designers thought, "Ah, yes, that's a really good window for us." And everybody started to pile in. And then another sort of big moment was when Nicole Kidman wore Dior Couture. I don't know what year was that? Ninety seven, ninety six. I, I don't know, but somewhere around then. And she wore that Chartreuse mink trimmed. I mean, no one would wear mink on the on the red carpet now. But anyway, and it did look quite incredible. I mean, it was couture. We'd never seen couture on the red carpet before. Not proper Parisian couture. And um, so that's when you saw that it could be a real fashion statement. Fashion in the Oscars had not been automatic allies. Well, there are some years when they don't even have a photo of the best actress winner. In her dress. What's amazing to me is how recently, really, we've moved away from circle of shame reporting. I know. Not we personally, (laughs) not throwing shade in this room, but it was it was very much a part of our job. You know, it was after the the morning after the Oscars, the morning after the Golden Globes. Your editor would want a roundup of the best dressed and the worst dressed. Mm -hmm. And they'd want you to point the finger and say, oh, my goodness, that hemline and oh, my goodness, you know, What's she doing wearing that? I think actually it was only recently when 
Alexandra Shulman uh, said that perhaps Helena Christensen was too old to be wearing a bodice. And we saw the backlash to that. And, you know, women supporting her on social media, celebrities speaking out and saying, this is disgusting for a woman to tell another woman she shouldn't wear something. Well, five years ago, we were all doing it. Mm-hmm. It was the front page of every newspaper. But those were more popular than the best rest lists. Exactly. Yeah, uh, but also what was interesting <laughs> about the uh, the kind of... the. <laughs> the vehemence of the abuse that Alex Shulman got was that the people abusing her, many of them, were using the same kind of judgment. Oh, you're too old. You're too this. It was all about her appearance. And it's like, well, come on, guys, you can't have it both ways. You can't attack a woman for attacking another woman by attacking her about her looks. You know, so we all need to step away from this. I I mean, personally... I can really hold my hand up in this room and say, yes, I was part, we we did, we did those best and worst dressed. And we sort of thought, well, it's actresses, they're getting a lot out of it, they're making lots of money, they're actresses, they can take it. But I'm so glad we've moved away from that culture, because I think, you know, some of those actors probably can take it. But I also think it just creates this really unpleasant, this unpleasant um ecosystem where it's fine to just be immediately knee-jerk rude about the way a woman looks. I don't like that. But I also think what's so weird about Instagram as opposed to Twitter, because Twitter just seems to be a very violent bear pit. You know, Twitter's all fluffy, fluffy, fluffy. But then people are absolutely vile in the things they say <laughs> often off Instagram. It's just so weird. And, you know, we all know this, but the things that people say on Twitter, they would never, ever say in polite society. So true. We'd hope not. We went from worst dress lists to Manny cams and the rise of the power stylist to the all black red carpet in 2018, when most of the women at the Golden Globes and BAFTAs were black in solidarity with people fighting abuse in the, in the entertainment industry. And now... Where does that leave us? So it's good that we can't be rude. Fine. We all have to be kind and civil. But are we allowed to be interesting? Are we allowed to even have opinions on on how women look on the red carpet anymore? Yes. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I actually think we have to work a bit harder. And But I think there's loads of interesting stuff to say about what's going on now generally. And yes, you can talk about... um, I, I think shoot me down not literally please but you know I think we can lots of shooting talk in this yeah I know it's an all coming from me what's wrong um (laughs) we can talk about the way humans choose to present themselves I think it's very very important and I think it's very interesting and I think also when you say to children oh darling it doesn't matter what you look like I mean it's just twaddle and it's not it's not to say that it matters that you're beautiful you're not beautiful because we can't we're just that's genetic but you can we can all make the best of ourselves or not and I'm all for you know being positive about things and I think I mean Clarissa Farr who's the headmistress of St Paul's an incredibly academic very successful you know the most successful arguably school in the country girls school she says it, it does matter how you present yourself. You you should you want to maximise your potential in every area, whether it's your braininess, your your ability to play the piano, and how you look. And it's not about being the most fashionable 
or wearing the most expensive bag is just thinking very intelligently about what the message you want to get across because people read you visually before they can do anything else. You know, dogs read each other via smell. We do it via sight. I think one of the positive uh, shifts that's come in the last 10 years in, in terms of how we read each other is the shifting kind of body beauty ideals. So some of these have been very extreme and not necessarily any more you know, relatable for the every woman. Uh, for example, Kim Kardashian. I don't think many of us have a bottom like Kim, especially when it was portrayed on the cover of Paper magazine with the, you know, champagne bottle and the cork fizzing around. But it is offering us this different idea of beauty. And I think, you know, on the red carpets, you were only seeing pretty much one body type, and that was thin. Mm-hmm. The lollipop head. And any actress who was bigger than a size 10 was a character actress. You know, she mm-hmm. she wasn't just an actress. See, she I, was... I think that's a huge positive. This mm. I don't I don't see how you could ever spin that as a negative. I think the fact now that every lookbook we ever get sent always has. I mean, if the brand has any sense at all of what's going out there, going on out there, you will have quite a mixed selection of shapes and. How wonderful. Look, Ashley Graham is on the cover of American Vogue. Yep. Stealing Pregnant, resplendent in a gold <laughs> caftan. <laughs> Ashley Graham, past guest on Fashion on Zip. Yes. I always like to you mention. You called it first. But isn't that good? It's, it's great. And, and I remember for years decade. when I worked on magazines, we'd always be told, oh, you know, no. Magazines uh, have nothing to do with anorexia. They're not in any way in place. And that may be because obviously eating disorders come from very complicated emotions and impulses but I know that when I've read um, issues of magazines that have gone for what they call their curve issues or whatever and the women are are, are, are normal and upward sizes I definitely feel better about myself. I think where you kind of stray into slightly iffy territory is when it is another kind of extreme extreme and and you know we've seen women getting bum implants and Padded spanks are now on the market and, and women are buying them to, to get that bottom. And contouring, that makeup trend of colouring your over, whole face Charlie. in. Well, exactly, but it gave birth to plastic surgery becoming a, a pretty regular thing. Oh, I don't know if it was contouring. I think we were heading that way anyway. And I also... But look, uh, I, I think, think it's all about choice, actually, and about education. I And it's about snobbery. And I think... To actually, to be quite frank, the more the more and more people who have bad plastic surgery, I think there there is already there's a huge backlash against it. They don't don't want to look like that. But it is just another ideal that isn't natural. I mean, Kylie Jenner became the the youngest billionaire ever, selling her lip kits and selling them on her face, which is a face she has had her lips done. She's she's had lots of work done, as has you know, most of that family. And it's something they speak very openly about, which is great that it's not a hidden thing mm. and, you know, that they mm. they are open about what they have done. But it is telling very young girls that this is what beauty is. I know. But I always think that... I don't know how many people rushed out to buy Kylie Jenner's lip. Youngest billionaire face. ever. Yeah, no, great. So that's a lot of people. But I can tell you there were a lot more people who didn't who just looked at it and thought, it's not for me. I'm not interested. Well, a restrictive beauty ideal is a restrictive beauty ideal, whether you're emulating, you know, a tall, thin fashion runway model or Kim Kardashian. But 
I think that the point is that now at the end of the decade, there are so many more role models I for agree. every different body type. So that, and so that a girl who grows up, you know, who maybe naturally has thicker thighs and a bigger, bigger butt, you know, she's got people to look at and say, all right, that's, that's one way to be beautiful. It's not the, o- the only way isn't to look like Nicole Kidman. I think we have, um, we have many more. We, we do have a bit more beauty diversity now. And actually, you know, to, just to bring it back to Instagram, that is one huge positive from Instagram because even though there's lots of downsides to Instagram and everybody faking this fabulous life and people somehow being slightly tricked, not tricked because they know it's not real, but there's still a bit of their brain that sort of reads it as real because it's Instagram, it's not in a magazine. But I, I think what we've seen is so many um, women gain following for the way they dress and look who are not who don't look like models yet they look great they've made the best of themselves just to go back to my other uh, soapbox but but they're not models and and people love that and you know we've done we did a piece last summer didn't we on how swimwear that was being modeled on bigger models was actually doing was often those were the, the pieces that sold better than the ones on the standard size six or eight model we've seen actually i think instagram has given people this voice to kind of say that actually we want to buy because we've seen it on someone we relate to as opposed to a super which brings us to fast fashion i mean this had begun obviously before 2010 primark opened in london in, in 2007 but it's you know the love island effect of these young women who are i mean they go to the gym, obviously, a lot. There's a lot of fake tan involved. There's some hair extensions. There's some very white teeth. But, you know, these are these are women working in normal jobs, suddenly put on this TV screen, parading around in swimwear, and it's all really affordable. I mean, damagingly affordable uh, <laughs> in terms of sustainability, but it is shoppable straight away. And this bizarre phenomenon of women watching them and saying I want that outfit to wear this Friday night I'll wear it once and never again because again that's part of the Instagram culture isn't it it's throwaway fashion and I think this was a real decade for that wear once buys well the decade that gave us Love Island also gave us Michelle Obama and dress diplomacy I mean, so the Obamas came into the, I say that the Obamas came into the, into office, but actually President Obama came into office <laughs> in 2008 and the world received the gift of Michelle Obama in her Isabel Toledo, you know, mustard seed dress and jacket outfit. And, and then she graced us with her J. Crew cardigan wearing, Christian Siriano loving, dress diplomacy embracing presence for the next eight years. I recently interviewed designer Roxanda Ilinchich. Uh, come back in a couple weeks to hear that interview on, on a very special fashion unzipped. And she said that seeing Michelle Obama in London wearing one of her dresses remains one of the highlights of her career. So, you know, Michelle Obama was a woman who really appreciated the power of clothes to convey a message and we saw some of her counterparts in other countries pick that up. We saw Samantha Cameron um, embracing the power of clothes. I mean, to the extent that when she left office, she founded a fashion label. And we've seen Melania Trump feign disinterest in dress diplomacy to the extent that she'll wear a Dior gown for a Thanksgiving 
event or, or something like that. But she will still come off the plane. She'll still come off Air Force One in the UK wearing Burberry. Do you, do you think um, Michelle Obama started dress diplomacy? I mean, Diana was wearing Chanel to Paris and Shawa Kameezas in well in Pakistan. I'm sure this has been going on for I was going to say decades. I'm sure the Queen is past a hundred percent. But I, I think that Michelle Obama was just the PhD of dress diplomacy. But nobody does it better than our British royals. Well, hey, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm being overly patriotic here, but this has been the decade of royal style icons. We had Diana. We've always had royal style icons. They've they've always dictated, you know, the white wedding dress came from one of our queens. You know, the, the changing necklines was because of a scar. You know, they have always dictated what we wear. But in this decade, first we had Kate uh, marrying Prince William in 2011. I mean, that dress moment, mm. walking into the church. And then from that moment... Everything she wears. I mean, the LK Bennett heels, the skinny jeans. She's always supported the high street, which makes her even more accessible. But her babies, you know, their swaddle cloths first spotted on the steps of the Lindo wing would sell out. And then we had, of course, Megan in 2017 with that engagement picture. The white coat. Well, and the Ralph and Russo, the jewels dress as well, that £54,000 dress. And then, of course, that royal wedding in 2018. I mean, we've just seen it on a whole different scale. Princess Diana actually is has been referenced so widely in the last couple of years. You know, she's inspired Tory Burch catwalk, uh, an off-white catwalk. Hayley Baldwin sort of copied some of her most iconic off-duty looks. You know, the jeans tucked into cowboy boots, and then. We've got the crown, of course, in the last couple of years, which I think has given people kind of more insight into the royal family and more of a sense of connection with the royal family. But also, you know, we've gotten to see what their wardrobes were like. We've gotten to see Princess Margaret's love of fashion and, you know, in the latest series, Princess Anne's amazing 70s wardrobe. And also seeing Camilla as a hot young thing. Camilla as a hot young thing. Yeah, I mean, I I think that after the death of Diana, there was there was kind of a dry spell in terms of royal fashion. And it and it took this younger generation coming in to re-energize anyone who ever could have been interested in it. And now we've got, you know, along with, with Kate, we've got replicates. We've got people who track everything that Megan wears semi-professionally. It, it's always a race to identify whatever the kids are wearing when they step out. It, it's an incredibly powerful force. And, uh, and I've been startled by whenever I'm back in the U.S., it seems like the royals are all that anyone wants to talk to me about. Is it, is it escapism, do you think? Have they become what Busby Berkeley was in, in the 1930s? I mean, it is, it is weird, this obsession with princesses, isn't it? Haven't we always been obsessed with royals? I mean, not we in this room, but I think, we as a society. I think that, that people are fascinated by it, but there's also like a fascination so deep that it verges on pity. Because none of us really want that job, right? Do we not? No. I think, See, I Charlie, think I think when you say haven't we all been fascinated with wars, yes, of course. But I think they go, they, they vary in, in how fascinating they are. So actually, I think in the 70s, for example, there was probably a period where the interest in them wasn't so great because the Queen was, you know, I don't know, how old would she have been in, in, the, in the 70s? Sort of in her 50s, she wasn't dressing in, in, a, in a fashionable way. Anne had 
sort of uh, shone briefly and then, you know, disappeared with Captain Mark Phillips. There wasn't anybody. Then Diana came along and everybody went crazy. But what I'm saying is I think it's really interesting as women are so, you know, rightly fighting, fighting, fighting against regression, you know, that's coming from Trump or from religious fundamentalism, you know, this push to to close down women's rights. Women are not having any of it if they can help it. But at the same time, there are all these women who sort of fantasize about being princesses, which is an it's a very passive role, you know. And the Duchess of Cambridge, who so brilliantly never steps out of line never steps out of line by never doing anything controversial. And we've seen what happens when you do do something a bit controversial or you make a speech which has the words empowered. Oh, give any it, opinion. You yeah. know, and, and you're absolutely crucified. There's a reason we turn off the comments on every royal piece that we write, isn't there? I think along with every... Well, what is it, Emily? Probably needs explaining. <laughs> what we've found, it, unfortunately to be consistent with every royal story that we publish is that it, it tends to attract really just poisonous comments and people trolling and, and jumping on any discussion of royal but, fashion. But, but not about the Duchess of Cambridge. It's no. only about the Duchess of Sussex, right? It is, it is mostly about Meghan, unfortunately. I think there's always with royals as well, there's an obsession, but there's also a level of jealousy. Yes. I mean, I, I, I have to say, I find this obsession... Look... I like looking at pretty royal picture as much as the next person. But I find this degree of obsession unhealthy. Well, before I watched The Telegraph, mm. I, I couldn't have told you anything about the royals. Mm. I didn't know who Princess Anne was until the new season of The Crown. But, but look, for <laughs> every... American, that's oh, loud. goodness. For, for every... Look, you probably still think of the Duchess, Duchess Meghan and Duchess Lip, Kate. I know. Don't tell Bethan. But look, I, for every princess in a carriage, there's also a princess locked in a, a, in a room at the top of a tower, well, right? Well, I think in they're the, often the same person. Mm, yeah, except the room at the top of the tower is the beam of celebrity. Probably a discussion for another day. All right, so we've discussed the royals, dress diplomacy, fast fashion. Let's talk about the brands that defined the decade. List, the fashion search engine, sent us a rundown of the hottest fashion pieces from every year in the 2010s. And I'm just going to read some of these out and see if they... The only one I, I think of as really defining the decade is, and I can't even remember its name, but is it the one, what's it called? Redemption, not redemption. You know, the LA one where everything's recycled. Oh, Reformation. Oh, yeah. Reformation. Reformation. That for me defines a decade. What about Vetmore? <laughs> what? Vetmore. What about? No, not for the real person. I mean, it's a fashion thing. I mean, you can nominate that for me. Oh, no, I'm not saying it's what I... But, but don't you think that was Emperor's New Clothes with the DHL T-shirts? Yes, but I the... think the average person, it just passed them by. Lisa, before you go, can you comment on one thing that you're looking forward to in 2020 or, or the 2020s? In the 2020s? For us to drop in. When Do we... you know what? It would be so nice. I'm going to sound like Anne of Green Gables, but if just people could think a little bit more before they post stuff on social media, the world would improve. I hope that's not directed at us. I'm going to check my Instagram. No, <laughs> just keep your politics off Instagram, please. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much. I've forgotten how much fun it is. And Happy New Year, everyone. Hi, I'm Claire Newell. When I tell people I'm the Telegraph's investigations editor, they sometimes ask me if it means I'm a spy and have lots of disguises. And there is a bit of blending into the background. But generally, I spend lots of time working with sources 
piecing together evidence to reveal wrongdoing and hold the powerful to account. Our stories question, scrutinise and inform. But we can't do that without the support of our subscribers. Their contribution allows us to dedicate time to stories, such as our investigation into the allegations that Sir Philip Green had sexually and racially harassed staff. So if you'd like to support what we're doing and get unlimited access to the huge range of quality journalism on politics, sport, business, culture and more, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. And after that, it's just £2 a week. That's telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or click on the link in the show notes to this episode. If you followed fashion in the 2010s, let's see if any of these items sound familiar. In 2010, sales of Alexander McQueen's skull print scarf increased 14,000% in the days after his death. In 2011, the key item was the rock stud shoe. Moving forward, 2015, the Gucci Princeton fur loafer. Remember those? The kangaroo footbed loafers. Charlie, did you ever have those? No. I think if, if something made this list... You probably don't want to have it, right? <laughs> That's because right. if everyone, if it was the best-selling thing of the year, I mean, yeah. So are you saying that I can be glad that I didn't have 2016's Vetmont DHL t-shirt or 2017's Dior We Should All Be a Feminist t-shirt? Yes, I think I am saying that. Um, <laughs> also skipped dad trainers in 2018. Although I did an ugly dad sandal. I think that's... Totally different. Definitely advisable. Okay, fine. Good. Relieved, And then this is a bit fresh and hopefully we won't regret that in 2019, Bottega Veneta was the breakout brand of the year. I'm glancing at Emily's feet to see if she's wearing her Bottega heels. I wore them yesterday and they were not the naked sandals that would slice your feet up. No, but also you went you went for a more timeless Bottega shoe. You didn't go for the really obvious one that everyone's got that. To be honest, I think it's a bit weird. But Daniel Lee did clean up at the Fashion Awards. So I mean... Here is his moment. But, you know, Gucci had that moment. And all anyone seemed to want were, you know, really bold and colourful Gucci pieces, all sorts of, you know, chinoiserie prints and lips and everything all over them. And now we're shifting towards Bottega Veneta. But in a year's time, in two years' time, I mean, what are the forever pieces? For me... The row. The well, row is just as popular now as it was when it launched, I think. And look at More. Phoebe Philo's Celine. You know, that was oh. this decade when Phoebe stepped down from Celine and Eddie Slimane stepped up. I mean, the queues at at Celine at Fashion Week were, were mad because everyone wanted to buy a bit of Phoebe Celine and then people were horrified to see Eddie's first collection. And the value of old Celine pieces has continued to rise as they've become scarcer and harder to track down. But then Eddie did this one shocking, you know, the models were so, so thin, the clothes were so far from the wearable, real-life pieces that Phoebe had done, kind of actually considering what women felt comfortable in and, and felt their best in. But then for his second collection, it was great. Yeah, Suddenly the, we loved it again. The first one was Saint Laurent by Eddie Slimane for Celine. Yeah. Really. So Gucci... Celine, Jacquemus, maybe those. I mean, in terms of viral moments, viral fashion moments, the Jacquemus, huge, huge hats and tiny, tiny bags 
were were funny viral moments. But I don't think they're going to make it into the history books. Emily, looking ahead to the 2020s then, what do you kind of feel are going to be the big shifts? Sustainability has to be the first answer. We've talked about this on the podcast before. um, And really, this is one area where Stella McCartney is way ahead of her time. Just the way that the fashion industry treats resources, grapples with climate change, and makes sure that we don't overproduce our way out of business is going to become a more and more urgent issue, don't you think? Yeah. I think even the way we are reporting about fashion has changed so much in in just a few months, really, because sustainability used to be a story that you would write occasionally, you know, a piece about sustainability and fashion, and it would tank online. You know, no no one wanted to read it. And every time Um, you wrote about it, you'd have to say, this is not the hemp fashion of yore. Exactly. Suddenly, it's become something that the consumer is actually interested in. And that's the thing. It has to really start with a consumer interest because otherwise, you know, brands are making these advances, but if nobody wants to buy, if nobody wants to wear it. But also just the way we are reporting fashion now, you know, we talk about rentals, the Fashion Awards a couple of weeks ago. I'm wearing a rental now. Emily's constantly coming in in fabulous new rented pieces. You know, I've listed some of my wardrobe on her collective, a rental site to make a bit of, you know, pocket money on the side. At the Fashion Awards a couple of weeks ago, we saw a whole lineup of women uh, wearing rented pieces from My Wardrobe HQ. That's that's really, you know, changing the and, face of fashion. And also, you know, we do a lot of shoots for the paper and the magazines where in the past, if we, I think that we would have shot a full look of in-store now pieces. Now we're mixing in items from our wardrobes, maybe with one new thing one rented thing, a vintage thing, an old pair of jeans that we love, really in a way that's much more reflective of the way that we all get dressed. And secondhand has lost a lot of that stigma around do, secondhand Do you shopping. mean luxury resale? <laughs> I mean, yeah, brand it how you like. It's and that is, the name. that is helpful. You know, people like to call things pre-loved or vintage. or But secondhand used to be something you maybe wouldn't brag about. And you wouldn't... I always bragged about good charity shop finds, but I have no shame. I think kind of on the front rows, it used to be like, oh, you're wearing the new, the latest designer thing. Now, if you say, oh, actually, I got this in a charity shop for a tenner, you know, that's those bragging rights are are worth so much more, aren't they? Because actually, you know, clever shopping from you. That's so important that we kind of break down any stigma that is left around secondhand shopping, because it also brings amazing brands into your price range that perhaps weren't before. You know, I can't afford a lot of things full price, but I can maybe afford them secondhand. It's the, it's the most sustainable way to shop. If you're going to shop, then you may as well buy something that's already been produced and put out into the world. Something that will probably be clogging up charity shops for years to come is fur. We've now, I mean, even the queen has said that she's gone off fur. She's going to be wearing faux fur. Now I have a problem with this. She's going to be wearing faux fur for any occasion that kind of demands fur be worn. I don't think that's a solution. I think the solution surely should be that we just don't do fur. That's not a trend. We don't want anything that looks like fur. No fur that you haven't grown yourself. Because faux fur, for the most part, is plastic. And, you know, if if it's washed, it releases really damaging um, microplastics into the water. And it's the same with, with faux leather. You know, everyone's saying faux leather is this great new trend, vegan leather. That's plastic. 
So whereas leather will biodegrade if it gets sent to landfill, you know, if you wear out your piece, plastic won't. So if you don't want to wear real leather, don't wear plastic either. Just try another trend. Wear corduroy trousers. Do you need to wear something that looks like leather? No, it's not the end of the world. But also, if you're going to buy something, make it something that you're fairly confident you will enjoy wearing for years to come and avoid the landfill issue altogether. All right. So that's our look back. Let's look ahead. Charlie, what are you looking forward to in the 2020s? I am looking forward to more body shapes, seeing more body shapes, seeing more diversity on the catwalk. This is this has been kind of creeping along in the last decade. We've started to see a more racial diversity on the catwalk. We've started to see more age diversity on the catwalk. At the Fashion Awards this year, both Naomi Campbell and Adu Akech were honoured for, for modelling, you know, and Adut actually thanked Naomi in her speech as one of her mentors. You know, we're starting to see women of different shapes and sizes on the catwalks. But in some cases, it still feels like tokenism. In some cases, you'll see a few models mixed in who are in their 50s and 60s. And then a press release will get issued saying, great talking point for editors, blah, blah, brand includes... 60 plus models. It shouldn't be a talking point. It should just be normal. It should just be normal that we see models of every race, every shape, every size, every age on a catwalk and in ad campaigns. You know, it shouldn't just be, oh, we're doing this this season and next season we'll be on to the next trend. It's not a trend. Next season, we're going back to Siberian teenagers. What are you excited about in the 2020s? I think I'm excited in the 2020s about something that I'm excited about every time I go to a show season, which is just the the potential to spot talent from unexpected quarters. You know, we get so used to going to the the big shows like the well-trodden path and and seeing the thing that everyone has to see. But the times in fashion that I tend to find most invigorating are the little show that maybe by a designer that you don't know much about or the presentation that you duck into because you ha have a spare five minutes before another show. And then you know, you might find someone you'd never heard of before who could end up being someone that that you are incredibly taken with and and love following for the next years. So let's let's bring on more talent and and applaud it wherever it comes from. And a new generation of women. I and a new generation of women. And hopefully, page. hopefully more fashion unzipped. <laughs> <laughs> We've loved bringing you guys the podcast over the past two years. And as the year winds down, we are going on hiatus. It's time for us to reassess. And we want you to be a part of that. We want to know what you love about Fashion Unzipped, what you hate, if anything, hopefully not, what you'd love to hear more of. Get in touch at unzipped at telegraph.co.uk. You can also feel free to reach out to us directly. I'm on Instagram at emilycro. And I'm at Charlie Gowans. And of course... You can find all of our content online. At the moment, we're writing about everything from Little Women and the most stylish TV shows of the year to our best-dressed women of the year and the decade. You can find all of that at telegraph.co.uk forward slash fashion unzipped sub, where you'll get a free 30-day trial. As one last little present for our loyal listeners, we have a bonus episode coming out around the new year. It's my interview with Roxanda. So look out for that in your feed. That's all from us for now. Have a velvety Christmas. And a sequiny new year. Bye. 
Bye.